The views and opinions expressed in the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the producers, the affiliates, or digital platforms hosting this podcast. All content is for the purposes of education, conjecture, and at times entertainment. We promote inclusiveness and diversity. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Into the Deep with Jay Caster. Welcome to Into the Deep. I'm Jay Costa. Somewhere between 550 and 500 BC, Pythagoras studied the musical scale and the ratios between the lengths of vibrating strings needed to produce them. He offered mathematical equations for the musical scales, showing that musical notes could be seen as relationships between numbers. A musical scale, for example, could be divided into eight notes. An octave scale, which repeats its sequence as the musical notes proceeded higher or lower. Then, around 370 BC or so, Plato wrote to Masis, in which the soul of the world is described as having these same musical ratios. Cosmology was emerging, in which the planet's radii were set with a ratio sequence. Later, these ratios would emerge, and this sequence approximated the Greek diatonic musical scale's ratios. Thus, the planets were tied to music, and a concept of Plato's The Music of the Spheres was initiated. Music and money share an immutable connection. Both systems encoded with mathematical ratios of creative tension that have the power to produce both harmony and dissonance. That's exactly what today's guest has done in her new book, The Next Octave, A Sustainable Economy Encoded in Music. Today's guest is Stephanie McPeak-Peterson. In Stephanie's book, The Next Octave, she talks about how over the centuries, governing philosophies tempering both music and money have created two systems of fiat notes, the values of which have been noticeably distorted. Musical regulations temper our monetary system, while a correlating theory of systemic debt tempers musical pitch. At the center of this controversy sit two powerful philosophers, one being Plato and the other Sir Francis Bacon. This is one of my absolute favorite books, and I implore you all to check it out. We talk about so much in this episode, and I just want to dive in. So join me as we seek light and journey into the deep with Stephanie McPeak-Peterson. Enjoy. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. I cannot thank you enough. Uh, it's an honor, honestly, you, your work, and I have not finished the book yet, so I'm going to be completely open and honest, but you have me. I'm just, uh, I'm there. So without further ado, if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners and our viewers who you are and what it is you do, my friend. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. And I am just a woman who was bored during COVID. And I've always been a writer, but mostly poetry and fiction. I do write about economic themes though, and I tend to weave those into my poetry and fiction, oddly enough. But I was, you know, I had some time on my hands and I started really looking into Plato and some of his economic maxims and some of the things that he was teaching in his work. And um, came across some scholars who were saying, you know, he encoded a lot of music in his work. And I thought, well, that's cool. I wonder if there's like a connection between what he's saying about music and what he's saying about economics and society and politics. And it seemed like there was. And then I stumbled over Francis Bacon and his new Atlantis you know, it was kind of a riff off of Plato's old Atlantis. And I just wondered, maybe Bacon also was doing the same thing because he was a big uh, guy into ciphers and codes and, and all these hidden messages in his work. So I decided to look into New Atlantis and see if I could find any musical codes. And I did. And so then I spent a year uh, writing them down. <laughs> 
And I love that. So I, there's so many questions in my brain it goes in so many different directions. And this is like totally my wheelhouse and I love it. And so I'm so enamored. So you're in COVID and you've got this time in your hands. So I got to ask, I know you said you have some, you know, you write more with economics in mind, with poetry and, and thus, uh, but I, what got you on this trajectory? I have to ask. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I think, I think I was just curious about, about Plato and I felt like I hadn't done enough reading of him in my life and I'm getting older and, you know, I, we might as well get around to doing that. Um, and I, I discovered very early on in reading him, I had read him some earlier too, but I, I discovered that, you know, I, this guy is not really jiving with me. I, this is not his vibration and mine were not quite resonating. And so I, that is a good thing though, because that spurs me to look deeper and, and I thought, well, you know, I, I might not have ever looked deeper into it if it was five years ago, but now I've got the time. And so I, I did look deeper and um, sure enough, I, I stumbled over some things that, you know, were just sort of taught to trust Plato. <laughs> He's smart. He's a smart guy. And he was absolutely, I can't deny that, but um yeah, it was, it was really, it, to be honest with you, the, the book that resulted was nothing that I ever set out to do. It just kind of came about on its own. And I love that. Um, so for those who are listening and watching, let's, let's talk about this book because it's, you're, you're onto something here. And uh, what inspired the title? Well, actually, yeah, I didn't write the title. It was given to me by William Henry. Get out! Oh. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I love him. And, yes, um, my partner and I have been fans of Ancient Aliens forever, and um, and I, I had met him and had done a, a walking tour that he gives in Nashville called the Path of Souls, which is this really cool tour that he takes you on personally. And shows you the the Nashville Mall, how it's set up like the human chakra system, and then at the end, um, up at the crown chakra, there's this big uh, circular thing with uh, these pillars with bells inside of them, and they play music. But also, if you stand in the center, um, you, your voice uh, kind of like resonates and echoes out into this this little chamber that you're in. And well, it's really more of an outdoor thing, but anyway, it was very cool. And I told him about my work and he agreed to write the foreword for my book. And it was originally called fraternizing of the hemispheres. And he said, Stephanie, let's try to find something a little more catchy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he came up with the next octave and it turned out to be he gave that to me before the book was completed and it turned out to be prescient because I kept finding new things uh, that led me to the next octave and the whole concept of ascension through music. So I really have to give all credit to him. Oh. Well, <laughs> you know, it, it's amazing how we don't, we don't realize it in the moment in time, but that collaborative work, that happens, right? And how this, there's this dance that, it, at least in my experience, that happens, whether that, you know, people want to look at it, whether it's conscience, you know, a consciousness that's just like there and absorbing what's around us and just like bouncing ideas of off, off of other people. So it's amazing mm -hmm. that him just planting the seed of just a title, right? Seems like, based on what you said, uh, sent you on this whole path. Yeah, I think it may have even changed the course of what I was doing a little bit. And in your opinion, for the better? Oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> awesome. So walk us through this. Now, you're talking about Plato. We're talking about like, you know, Atlantis. I mean, a lot of folks might not necessarily have read old or new Atlantis. They might not necessarily be familiar with the topics that are discussed. How did you come to become aware of this? Well, there was another scholar back in the 70s who talked about how Plato encoded musical information into his writings. 
And what what this scholar found, his name was Ernest McLean. He wrote a book called The Pythagorean Plato. And what he found was that uh, there were four cities, city-states that Plato was discussing, and he was sort of comparing and contrasting them and showing which was the better society and which was better governed and that sort of thing. And Atlantis was one of the four, and it was it was tuned musically. And, and this is not overt. This is not well, some of it, some of it he he did write, like in the creation of the world soul, he was sort of overt with his musical metaphors. But McLean said that he encoded all of this tuning information regarding Atlantis, showing it to be the most free society of the four that he was comparing. And in his view, that was a bad thing. He was not really pro-freedom. He thought that all societies needed this uh, certain type of governance from a philosopher king and that Atlantis was just way too unruly because what they weren't doing was they weren't tempering their music in a way that he thought that they should. And there were different ways even back then of tempering music, which it, it, it's very technical. And even I, I don't understand all of it. I've learned a lot about it. <laughs> but Atlantis was the least tempered of the four. And he was critical of that. And he kind of blamed that for the fall of Atlantis. And so um, when I started reading Bacon's new Atlantis, I was curious, okay, well, do you have, did he have anything to say about music overtly or did he encode anything? And he did have one paragraph on sound. And, um, and so that was illuminating. It, it really was. And I, I put that in my book, but he also had these metaphors that were coded in that were not obvious. They were all based on numbers of men and numbers of well men and sick men and men coming on shore. Yes. And, and I, I looked at all the numbers and kind of laid them out and struggled with them for a while, trying to figure out, well, if these are musical, how? you know, are these scales, are these keys, are these notes themselves? And everything I tried just came up with nothing until I said, well, let's just, let's just use these numbers and apply them to the harmonic series. And when I did that, everything sort of fell into place and I made a discovery. I love that. It's, it's fascinating how these these, I mean, we think of them as like, you know, when we watch a DVD or a movie or whatever, they call them Easter eggs, you know, there's like right. these little hidden gems in there, right? Yes, and so yes. for these folks to bury this, I mean, we're now dabbling on the esoteric. We're talking about, you know, people encoding things and enciphering things mm-hmm. for those with the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And literally you're talking about with the ears to hear. And I, yeah. Where to go from there? So I, I surmise you're talking about the the ratio, the fifty one seventeen, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yes. Awesome. Yes, he um, he mentions. I mean, it's it's a ratio that just sticks out like a sore thumb. I knew it had to mean more than than one to three, which is what it breaks down to. Um, so I pu- I applied the ratio to the harmonic series, and it didn't actually fit exactly. Um, the way that the harmonic series is structured, and I hope this doesn't become too muddled, but the way it's structured is that there are notes in the beginning. Um, then you hit harmonic 16 and from there it produces a whole scale and then you hit harmonic 32. And then from there, extraneous notes are added in to infinity, but they are mostly means. They're like notes between notes and harmonics. And so the the main notes that it produces are the C scale between harmonic 16 and 32. So if you're going all the way up to harmonic 51, you're into mean territory. And um, so that's not really a note. But if you count backwards from harmonic 51, 17, you get to harmonic 23. And the only way to do that, it wasn't obvious at first that that's what he was meaning to do because you're counting means. And I couldn't, there was one 
harmonic in my way, kind of screwing everything up. And that was harmonic 27. And it, which is an A note, it's the major sixth of a, of the C scale. And if I counted that as a note, the numbers weren't working, but if I went ahead and counted it as a mean, it worked. And I lit upon harmonic 23 and harmonic 23 is in between 16 and 32. And a lot of things that I had read up until this point just sort of lumped harmonic 23 in with harmonic 22. Oh, it's just a, a different version of F sharp. But there were four of these harmonics in between 16 and 32 that I felt he was pointing me to the first one or whoever, you know, whoever <laughs> noticed this was pointing me to the first one, but there were a total of four, harmonic 23, 25, 29, and 31. And they are really frequencies in their own right. And if you look at harmonic 16 to 32 as a chromatic scale, they have the same weight as every other note in that scale, except that according to mainstream music theory, they just don't exist. And so that was confusing. And so then I spent a while trying to figure out, all right, how did I screw this up? <laughs> And, um, and I've been doing that for, for a while. I mean, I finished the book a year ago and I've, I've been asking around a lot. Um, I finally did get, uh, someone with a music theory degree to, to look at it and say, you know what? Yeah, those are there and they sure look like notes to me and we're not using them. And uh, she turned out to be a, a, someone who's now a good friend of mine, Elin Carlson. She is the um, the singer, the vocalist of the solo in this remastered Star Trek theme. They remastered it about 20 years ago, and it was her voice singing that. Wow. And so when she kind of helped validate the idea for me, I felt better about sharing it. But up until then, I was still kind of... Oh, you know, I'm not sure. It looks like a thing, but is it a thing? And um, I, I think it's a thing. Right on. And, and then using her expertise with musical theory and, you know, using the math to figure out like these are indeed notes. They, to the definition mathematically of what, a, what those notes would be, right. you're, what you're saying is she's validating your discovery. Like, yes, these are in fact notes. Yes. Yeah. Oh. How did that feel? Oh, <laughs> it was such a relief because, you know, I, I have a friend who made a, a similar bacon discovery, Jake Roberts. And uh, when he first made his discovery, it's not music related, but when he first made his, he was like, oh no. And that's kind of how I felt too. I'm like, oh, this isn't, oh, this is going to be a lot more work now, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it felt good. And, um, you know, I've gone over it and over it and over it and second guessed myself many times, but there's just no way around it. I think that he was pointing us to these four notes and I, you know, th there's any number of pathways that your brain can go down once you realize that they're there. My first thought, and I, I put this in the book, is that I think, and this may sound crazy, but that's okay. I think that the that the Masons and and Bacon was kind of a um, a leader of speculative Freemasonry in his time. Um, at least that's the theory. And I think that the Masons were in they they were they were in the process of of doing musical tuning. And why would they do that? I it's odd. I know. Um, because they're supposed to be stone workers. But as William Henry pointed out to us in Nashville, the word stone um, has all of the same letters as the word tones. And I do believe that the Masons and their Masonic work was interested in sound. And I know Bacon was interested in sound. He discusses it in Silva Silverum, which is his more scientific work. Right. And I know he was studying sound. And I think that the Freemasons were interested in tuning because 
I think it could afford them some control over society. And I also feel this way because um, one of the men who really sort of solidified equal temperament tuning, which is the tuning that we use today, was a man named Marin Mersenne. And he was working um, with, he was friends with Galileo, and it was Galileo's father who first put together the kind of the nascence of equal temperament. And it's it's a genius idea, I have to admit. It, it's You have to be good at math to come up with this. Um, and he made a good foundation. But then Marin Mersenne came along and said, I think I could even improve this. And the way he improved on Vincenzo Galilei's work was using a straight edge and a compass, which are the tools of the Masons. And he used those tools to come up with equal temperament tuning. So I suspect that Bacon may have been unhappy with the direction that this group that he had helped form, he may have been unhappy with the, with the direction that they were taking musical tuning, but he didn't feel like he could really speak out about it publicly. So he encoded the information so that someone else would, you know, get on it and bring it up, but nobody ever did. (laughs) So, so a proverbial trail of breadcrumbs. Yeah, very much right. so. Interesting. And 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 so <clears throat> obviously there's been so many different conspiracy theories about, you know, Sir Francis Bacon, William Shakespeare, you mm-hmm. know, all that information and things that were, you know, maybe ghostwritten or what have right. you. So in your opinion, what do you think was the purpose of maybe hiding these, these tones and these notes that are now discovered? Well, I, I think Bacon had a lot of information in his head that he didn't feel comfortable sharing. Um, because at that time, if you said the wrong thing, you could be killed for it. So now, could could he have been killed for discussing this? I don't know. Maybe, maybe he just enjoyed encoding his thoughts. <laughs> it's fun, and it's fun to decode them too. So you know that there could be some of that as well. Mm-hmm. But if there was a break in the Masonic group, and I, I suspect that there could have been, because he had a rival, he had kind of an arch enemy, if you will, named Sir Edward Coke, who was a fellow attorney at the same time that Bacon was. And um, they were rivals for the same woman. I believe it was Coke who ended up marrying the woman. But um, they were also arguing with each other a lot in the law, in case law. They would they would argue from different points of view on a case. and and um, I did read somewhere in, I think it was in a, in a publication of the 1723 constitution of the Freemasons. And I can't remember if the note was a modern note, like footnoted in, or if it was actually in the original uh, 1723, but there was mention that Sir Edward Coke as judge had given a, had had formed a a decision that was something that the masons ever since had been very thankful for and i'm not familiar with what that was i haven't been able to find it um i'm not done looking but something tells me that if it was a, a legal decision that coke handed down it likely may have disagreed with Bacon's position on it, whatever it may have been. So anyway, this is just a theory that I'll have to run down at some point. Um, But I I, I do think there probably were some arguments in the Masonic lodges at the time and, and that Bacon just didn't feel like he could discuss what was going on freely. So, felt maybe perhaps felt the need to <clears throat> hide this information um, right. in hopes that maybe at a future date, it could be discovered. Right. Right. 
in your opinion, what do you think, what do you think is so important about these notes? And now you, you brought up a point earlier. You felt as though, and I'm paraphrasing, so correct me if I'm wrong. These, I, I want to get your words exact. You, you brought up a point about um, some sort of control of the masses. If, is that correct? Mm-hmm. So, and we're talking about like, um, you know, obviously even like standard scale, we're talking, you know, 440 Hertz now, you know, um, you're talking about along those lines of things. Oh, partially. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I, at the time that Bacon was writing this, they were probably just then first toying with A at 440. And when I first learned about tuning methods and some of these theories that tuning could affect the, the psyche, I, I was very open to that. That makes sense to me, but I didn't really think that a single frequency could be that important. Um, I was more interested in the intervals between the frequencies. Mm. And when you start messing around with those, that can really kind of mess with the head. And, and we know that from, um, you know, binaural stuff, it can, it can do both good and bad to the brain. But as I got more interested in this topic and and researched it more, I realized that certain frequencies are in a way more powerful than others. And 440, um, which is really what equal temperament is based on, A at 440, is a frequency that reduces down to the number eight. And that means that it is a matter-based frequency. It is all about the doubling power of two. And it's, it's about matter. It's about the earth. Um, and that's fine. The whole harmonic series is built upon the power of two. But there are other frequencies that are based on the power of three. And those are more ascendant frequencies. And they're spirit-based. And uh, so we... We essentially went from whether you're looking at Pythagorean tuning or harmonic tuning. There's there are other many other tunings right. as well, but a lot of those way back when had a 432. The harmonic series, even though it's built on the power of two, the, the harmonic series will put a at 432, um, and that is a, a frequency that reduces down to the number nine, which is spirit based. And so um, for me, that made a lot more sense when I stumbled across Marco Rodan and his Mobius circuit. Are you familiar with that circle thing? Yes. (laughs) And and it made a lot of sense to me because the way that the harmonic series is structured, if you, so it, it starts with one, just like the number series C at one hertz. And C will double up its octaves and it'll follow that same path of one, two, four, eight, seven, five. Um, But once you get to harmonic three, that's your perfect fifth. That's G off of the tonic C. And if you plug that in at number three on the Mobius circuit, then its first octave is six over here. There's your octave. And then if you go up to the number nine, that's the perfect fifth. That's G off of the tonic C. And um, it, it's not the ninth harmonic. That's actually the note of D. But nine in position with three and six comes down. If you bring it down into that octave, it reduces down to 4.5. And that's your mes. That's your perfect fifth of G. Now, D at nine hertz is a completely different key. And that's right. something else that we could talk about. <laughs> But the the three six nine staying in the key of C is tonic octave perfect fifth, and that's one reason I think why the Masons have the big letter G in their logo is because they know that there is a spiritual ascendant power to that perfect fifth, and um, I think it was Rudolf Steiner who also said that the perfect fifth is a hugely spiritual interval. And we just ignore it. We just, we don't know that. And one of the reasons that we're not focused in on that is because with equal temperament tuning, which the Freemasons may have had a hand in, um, the way that they've tuned the scale, it actually 
pushes that perfect fifth of G out of its position as center, what I call the mes, because that was an ancient Greek word for middle. And they used mes and the word mason, M-E-S-O-N, which sounds a lot like mason, to denote the center. And it's also how bricks are laid. They, they're laid off the mes. And, uh, well, most of them are. I have seen some that weren't. But anyway, um, so equal temperament tuning has moved G off of that Mies position, off of the center, and has put instead F sharp, which is the tritone, which is the most dissonant interval off C that maybe it's not the most, but it's one of them. It's a very dissonant <laughs> interval. And that is now sitting in the Mies position and in, in, on an equally tempered piano. Mm-hmm. And so we don't value the Mies of the perfect fifth. We don't see it for what it is. And I think if Bacon was involved in the writing of Shakespeare, I think he even put some of that information into at least one of the Shakespeare plays, if not more. There are little hints every now and again that suggest that this was going on. This, what I call the usurpation of the Mies. Hmm. Wow. So we're talking usurping a whole frequency, a whole different sound, everything. Yeah. So I've got to ask you your opinion. We're talking tritones now. I mean, you know, props to Black Sabbath for bringing up the tritone in heavy metal, right? <laughs> so is that why it has such a different appeal to a completely different part of the psyche? Well, uh, there could be many, <laughs> there could be many reasons. Um, the, the tritone is named because it's three whole steps off the tonic. And so, okay, that's fine. But it's, it also brings to mind the Greek God of Triton. And he was known for like shrieking this horrible, like siren sound that he made. And so it could be that some people are just, you know, tuning into the, the energy of that. Mm. And I, I mean, Triton, I don't think was necessarily a, a bad God. Uh, he was the father of Pallas Athena. Um, well, he was the father of Pallas. And then Athena took on the name of Pallas Athena when she accidentally killed her. But um, so th- there could be some of that going on. Um, it's the, it's a, an interval that's also used in the Simpsons uh, theme song. So as long as you're resolving it, it can be almost kind of a a fun interval, Mm -hmm. but there is a conspiracy regarding the tritone. And and this does get a little bit of a little bit complicated. And so for that, I, I sometimes like to just direct people to my book, because if you really want to know the details of it, it's in there, Mm. but in a kind of in a nutshell, harmonic 22 is F sharp. That's the tritone. And harmonic 23 is where I felt that Bacon's 51 to 17 ratio was, was pointing me. Right. And if you look at an equally tempered C scale, it places the F sharp tritone actually closer to the 23rd harmonic than the 22nd. So I pulled those up on a tone generator just to listen to them and harmonic F sharp, which is harmonic 22 is dissonant, but it is less dissonant, I think, than harmonic 23 off of the tonic of C. And yet that's what we're given an equal temperament. We're Hmm. told that it's harmonic 22. Like if you go to Wikipedia and they tell you what the different notes are and and their harmonics, they'll say that F sharp is harmonic 22 and maybe sometimes harmonic 23. That's that whole thing where, yeah, harmonic 23 isn't a note of uh, on its own. Well, it is. And we're using a closer approximation to that than we are to harmonic, the harmonic tritone. Hmm. So it could be one of those situations where it is so dissonant that some people, you know how, you know, you, when you see a train wreck, you want to look. <laughs> Just <laughs> want to keep you, watching. 
Yeah. When you hear a train wreck, you want to hear it again. Interesting. I've always found it fascinating that you can take, you know, to bring it back, even just to think about like Black Sabbath being one of the mainstream bands that really leveraged a lot of that tritone and where it had this effect on folks where, you know, people thought it was, you know, the court of the devil, you know, and like all this evil connotation to it. But I don't think a lot of people are taking the time to realize mathematically what it is and why it has the effect that it does when we're listening to it, why it can make some people feel frightened or uncomfortable while it can make other people feel empowered and feel good or, you know, insert whatever uh, adjective you'd like, but Mm -hmm. what do you think it is about this, this area? Now we're talking Mm -hmm. frequency and vibration. And we know now that frequency and vibrations can have an effect on the psyche. We know this it's been weaponized. I mean, there's been plenty of research done on this. So do you feel like this hidden frequency or this hidden octave, if you will, um, has been hidden because it might, in your opinion, do you think maybe it has some great power? Uh, it probably does because the the tuning that we use in equal temperament to tune F sharp is based off of, like I said, harmonic 23. Of course, we're not tuning it at 23 because that's below our ability to hear. But you scale that up and it's actually slightly above 23. So it's a sharp, what I would call W note. I've just named it W. <laughs> For lack of a better right <laughs> But a sharp W then is, is ranging very close to the G, to the perfect fifth. And back down here in, in, our, first, in our first scale of 16 to 32, the one that we can't hear but is, is kind of the foundation, that 23rd harmonic that's a little bit sharp is sitting right next to G, which is at 24. Now you scale up 24 if you are tuning uh, a song, a guitar, just a, a slight bit sharp, you are flirting with the perfect fifth when you're hitting your tritone. And what is the perfect fifth? They call it in rock music, the power chord. It is. And so you're almost there. And, and I'm sure that, well, and depending, uh, you know, on from guitar to guitar, how they're tuned individually and you know, the ear of the beholder, as you're flirting with that power cord, but maybe not quite getting there, that can become very addictive. Mm. I see. So it sounds like because we're on the cusp of something that maybe is, maybe is entertaining, uh, like a better word, uh, I guess, exhilarating our psyche, right? Maybe it's, there's something about it that maybe we know deep down in our DNA, there's something about it that's resonating with us and we're just on the cusp. And so it it has that appeal, that addictive trait to it. That's kind of what I'm picking up with what you're you're saying. Right. And any sound wave, you know, it, it moves. And so it's, it's not still, it's, it's going to be flirting and pulling back and flirting and pulling back. And if you've got vibrato going on even more so, so. This is awesome. I mean, so where you're at now, books out, people are reading it. Were you scared? Were you worried? Were you, was there any kind of trepidation to kind of maybe announce to the world or like release this kind of information or discovery? Yes. And I was resigned to the fact that this was probably going to be unpleasant. And that's why I didn't probably say a lot about it for the first year that it was out. Because like I said, I was still looking for anyone who could at least help me better understand what I found. Because I don't have a degree in music theory. I played piano when I was young. And my only claim to fame really was that my senior year of high school, I got a perfect score on my piano solo And that involves not only playing a piece, I think mine was a Beethoven piece, but you also have to sight read music that you've never seen before. And you have to do four octave scales up and down the piano keyboard in any key. And you don't know what they're going to ask you. So that's really my only claim to knowing anything about this is, 
is what I did when I was 16 years old and promptly quit doing at the age of 17 because I didn't really enjoy it. So I have been searching for people who could help, you know, like I said, validate this discovery because it's not mine. I didn't set out to, I think that there's four notes that were missing and I'm going to go find them. It wasn't like that at all. Right. And so, um, so I, I kind of feel like I'm starting to get some of that feedback now. And I, I've had a little bit too from non-professionals, um, not necessarily somebody that I could point to as an endorsement, but sure. I've had enough that I'm starting to feel, you know, enough confidence that I can, you know, maybe get out there and talk about this a little bit. Absolutely. And I guess maybe a bigger question. Um, what are your hopes with the release of this information? Well, um, one hope is I, I think that if, and I have a, a YouTube channel where I try to explain some of what I'm writing because it can be muddy and it, it's easier to see if I, if I show some, some examples in a video. So I've tried to do that. Um, I feel like if people can see the way that our regular diatonic scale is structured, it will help open some eyes and wake some people up to the fact that maybe this isn't exactly the way that we've been told it is. And who knows what that could lead to? Maybe people waking up to some other things that they might be asleep to. But um, in a simple diatonic scale like do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, we were all programmed as kids to hear that as a very basic stair step scale up. And in my head, it always sounded even, you know, like, like each interval was even and sure. boom, you get up to the top and you're done. And when I actually looked at it in the harmonic series, accounting for these missing notes, that scale is all over the place. It's not even at all. Right. And I think people need to know that and to realize that as you're reaching the top of that scale, you have been programmed to hear those intervals in a way that they they really are not. They're much wider than you realize. And so when you listen to harmonic tuning of a scale, it sounds off. And I'm sure nobody is going to want to, to write a song based off of those that tuning right now, because it's going to sound jarring to the ear. But I guess my hope is that people would have an open enough mind that they would begin to try to deprogram their ears and listen to the harmonic tuning and sort of make peace with that. I love that. And you're right. I mean, if we get indoctrinated into some system that we don't know any different, we just know that this is the scale. This is, you right. know, the diatonic scale is what you hear. I mean, even trying to explain to folks that might not necessarily have any musical theory in them, uh, education, knowledge, what, what have you, just trying to explain to someone the difference between the step between E and F and, you know, B and C and how that correlates. Like, you know, you lose a lot of folks, you know, like, wait, what do you mean? Like, oh, hold on. Like, let me explain. So it's interesting because here we are, I mean, here are conversations and I think it's the perfect timing is we're now having conversations even today that folks weren't even open to or ready for five years ago, 10 years ago. You know, when we talk about consciousness and we talk about frequency and vibration and the effect that it has on the psyche and the human body. And now, Stephanie, with your discovery here, and I think the time is right. And that's my honest opinion. I feel like now is such a perfect prime time uh, for, for folks to really pardon the expression and the pun to tune in to what you're doing and, and to yeah. another pun, take note. <laughs> it's surprising how many musical terms are out there in our daily life. I was surprised how many musical terms are used in economics. And that is a whole nother section of my book where I talk about the overlap of music theory and economic theory. And the note is central to that. And the, the concept um, of the fiat note that we have in our monetary system today can actually, and this is really kind of where I was going when I first was looking at Plato, 
is because he was recommending 400 years before Christ that we should be creating fiat notes in music. And, and they were successful with that. They were debasing their currency back then. And Plato was a direct recipient of the financial benefit of doing that because one of his friends was like a brother-in-law to the king of Syracuse. So the whole debasing of money funded Plato's academy and his lifestyle. And so, of course, he's going to suggest that there's nothing wrong with a fiat musical note or a fiat currency, which they didn't have notes back then. They were debasing coinage. Sure. But, uh, but it, the note term has definitely uh, reached us and kind of dwindled down to where we are today. And we have both kinds of, of fiat notes in music and currency today. It's funny you bring this up because, you know, you think about the fiat system where we're at, how we're seeing the decentralization now with maybe Bitcoin and mm -hmm. other cryptocurrencies and how many folks that aren't, don't have that financial literacy that might not even understand when you throw something out at them, like about a mandrake mechanism and, and any of that when we're talking about fiat currency. So the fact that you're finding the congruence between musical notes and promissory notes. Yeah. <laughs> what got you here? Uh, <laughs> my answer is going to make you laugh. What got me here was I was caught in a tornado. Right shortly before I began writing this book, I was caught in a tornado. I already had an interest in economic things because I was trying to teach economics to kids in little books. I had done that for my own kids when I was homeschooling them. And so that was something I was interested in already. But in the summer of 2020, during COVID, my partner and I were caught in a microburst tornado. And honestly, I don't think I've ever been the same since. And I have a, a much clearer connection, I feel now, spiritually with maybe my higher self or my guides, if you want to call them that. Uh, sometimes I think it's my dad is trying to call down from heaven to me and give me some information. Uh, honestly, this is nothing that I ever would have just, you know, laid out in an outline saying, I want to prove this. <laughs> it's just what I seem to be finding as I go along. It's wonderful when those synchronicities start happening and like yeah. all of these things start lining up and to your point, like, it's not like you were necessarily seeking out to, I'm going to find these four notes that <laughs> like never just, but you've gone down this path and what have been some of those, I guess, situations or moments that you can recall, like those little milestones that have happened over the past two years that have led you here. Well, um, that's a good question. I, I think some of it has occurred in dreams. Mm. Um, some of it in meditation. Um, I, I remember one night I was meditating on, um, really just whatever they wanted to throw my way, I was open to hear. And uh, we started having a conversation about octagons and the interior angles of an octagon add up, I believe, if memory serves, because I'm not, this geometry is not me either. I'm not a math person at all. I'm a poet. <laughs> but I believe the interior angles uh, add up to 1,081. I could probably look that up. Anyway, whatever they add up to, uh, I heard in my head that is a perfect fifth off the tonic of a circle. Go calculate it on your calculator. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I got up and I got out my phone's calculator and, and calculated whatever it was that they had asked me. I may be remembering the numbers wrong, but whatever it was that they said, I calculated it out. And sure enough, it was the, the ratio of a perfect fifth, three to two. And so I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> 
because a lot of times things would come through that way when maybe I wasn't quite ready for it, but okay, you've got to act now, at least write it down. So you don't forget, you know, (laughs) so things like that happened uh, through the whole course of, of writing the book. Um, And some of them, honestly, I just don't remember. There were so many that I, you know, once one happens, you forget about the last one and you're moving on and you're looking forward but it, it's been, you know, kind of a, a fun process. And definitely, I have to admit to being one of those people who sometimes hears voices. Right on. <laughs> no, I thank you for sharing. I, I think it takes a lot of courage. But nowadays, I feel like it's more accepted versus, you know, 10, 20, even especially 100 years ago. That would get you on a stake somewhere. Right. Uh, you know, so. I encourage that. And I think it's important for folks to realize that there are a lot of, a lot of individuals that are hearing things and experiencing things and it's real. Yeah. I would call a lot of what happened on this book, just a download, whether that happened in a conversation with them or with another person, or if it was a thought or even just stumbling over you know, a passage in, in Bacon or Shakespeare, right. uh, a, a lot of it felt like it was downloaded. It certainly was not being generated by my brain. Right. Just like a, just doors opening up for you, proverbial yeah. doors. Yeah. And I could at least recognize what I was seeing, but I, I certainly, I couldn't take credit for it. Right. Not, not at all. And I love that you say this. Do you feel, and I, I answer this in however you want, you know, I think it's important for folks to think about the impact you have, right? Legacy, or do you feel like you're part of a lineage, if you will, some sort of torchbearer? Well, if I am, I think they must have thought they being them that I would make a good torchbearer because I'm not an expert in this field. Mm. I, I, I do think that if this information had um, come, you know, knocking down on the head of, of somebody who was a professional in music, a music theorist, it would have been a lot harder for them to accept but because I don't know a lot about music theory, just a smattering, it was much easier for me to accept and my mind was more open. So I, yeah, I, maybe, I don't know, but I certainly was not sent here to become a, a music expert and teach everyone the way it is. That's right not it at all. <laughs> I like that. I like the the fact that you bring up a great point of if it had fallen into somebody else, like right, their perception of it would be so different. Um, and they might not have been as open to it as, as you are, you know, being a poet, being someone who, you know, my words here. So I, you know, a, a poet is someone who chooses expression. They internalize these feelings and they're not sure how to get them out, but through prose, they're able to maybe articulate some semblance of that emotion through words. Mm-hmm. And so here you are taking some of these, I guess you could say inspirations and some of these feelings, and you're able to put them out there for, for folks like all of us to maybe take a piece and go forth. Well, I hope so. I hope it resonates with people. I mean, that's the fear, isn't it? Is that you think that you've got this message and you're going to put it down on paper and you think it's clear, but then it goes out into the world and it comes back void. <laughs> so, cricket, cricket. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that I don't, terrible. I don't think that's happening with you. Um, oh, I hope not. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. I think you, in my opinion, um, I think it's, it's a wonderful sentiment and a part of something much greater than any one of us could imagine. And you're contributing to a, a larger whole um, in my, in my honest heart, I, I really feel like you are, you're doing something very special and unique. Thank you. I hope so. Uh, I know so. <laughs> Whatever that's worth. It's worth a lot. I love hearing that from you. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, where can folks find you on the internet? Well, I have a YouTube channel, um, just 
with my name as the as the identifier, Stephanie McPeak Peterson, which is how, kind of my pen name. I use my maiden name on my book. So it's Stephanie McPeak Peterson. That's also my YouTube channel. Then I have a website, stephaniepeterson.net, that I never put anything on, but you can go there if you'd like. <laughs> right on. Okay. And I, I think that's about it. The book is available on Amazon because I haven't found a better venue for self-publishing. Fair, fair. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I would love to, you know, and in the future, I, I certainly am going to be looking for that. But for now, I, at least I must give credit where it's due. And, and I'm so thankful for a platform like Amazon where somebody like me can go and publish some thoughts and get them out there. Absolutely. And I got to ask, um, is there, since it's, especially because it's independently published, um, is there a way for folks to reach you directly, maybe buy a book from you directly and like, you know, help support you? Because a lot of our listeners ask those questions. We get a lot of messages asking, hey, is there an additional link where I could buy directly from an author or an artist? I don't have that set up, but maybe I will sit down and do that because that's a good idea. I just haven't, I hadn't even given that any thought. Uh, so yeah, I will look into doing that, but I suppose if they wanted to contact me, um, they, there is a, a mailing list that you can sign up for on my website. And, um, if you don't, if you sign up for that and don't hear back from me, it means I set it up wrong. <laughs> so then right the on. next best thing to do would probably be to just leave a comment on one of my videos. I see those for sure. And I awesome. do try to, I do try to answer all of those. That's great. Any social media at this juncture? Well, I'm on Facebook. Um, awesome. You know, Facebook is a weird place. Um, but but <laughs> if you feel like looking for me there, it's again under the same name, Stephanie McPeak Peterson. Awesome. I love that. And, uh, you know, you know, we always try to make sure that we have all the links in the description. We want folks to be able to find our guests. We want them, especially if they're you know, authors, artists, anything that they have to offer. We want, we want to point folks in the right direction. And it's great that we've got such a great fan base. We have such a, a great following of folks, a great community. I won't even say following. It's a great community of individuals that, that care about supporting, you know, research, the arts, you know, and just the spirituality and the science of everything. And uh, I want to make sure that people can find you, Stephanie. I will provide you with all of those and yeah, we'll get those in the description. That's awesome. And yeah. I just, I feel so super honored to even be, be allowed to speak to your community because it does seem like a, a super cool group of people. Uh, you know, it's, it, you're part of it. You're now part of it. You are part of this community and yeah. uh, I'm, I'm honored. The honor is mine and, and, and George and I are really excited. Is there anything else that you'd like to maybe share with some folks before we go? Well, I, I think that in my heart of hearts, what I'm hoping is that truth in one area will lead to truth in all areas. And so I, I don't pretend to, to be able to speak to the greater truth of the world, but if I can throw a little piece of it out there and you can catch it and it'll help open maybe a new pathway of thinking I, and, and, and then do that for the next person in your own way, you know, maybe we can get something going that way. And I, I just hope it spreads. I love that. And it resonates with me because that's why I do this too. And that's why George and I work together because we want folks like yourself to just be able to talk to people and us to have these great conversations and keep the dialogue open so that yeah. folks can have that truth to a greater truth. And there you have it. I absolutely love that conversation with Stephanie. I cannot implore each and every one of you enough to check out The Next Octave, a sustainable economy encoded in music. If you're watching this video, we really hope you take a moment and subscribe to the channel and hit that like button. And if you're feeling inclined, leave a comment below and let us know what you think of this content. Did this make you want to check out some work by Plato or Sir Francis Bacon? Maybe you're thinking a little bit differently about the fiat money system. Be sure to find us on Instagram at itd.jcosta, as well as on Twitter at itd underscore jcosta. Thank you all so very much for joining us on this journey. And until next time, take care of one another and keep thinking 
for yourself.